Hello, I am Lynn Kitchens, and I am so happy to be here with you today. We're continuing our study in Exodus. You probably noticed that we skipped a few chapters, and we will get back to those chapters in the fall. It's going to be about the tabernacle, and there are great things for our lives in the study of that. So come back in the fall, and we'll catch you up there. Um, today, though, we're going to look at some important conversations and I wanted to ask you if you've ever eavesdropped on a conversation. <laughs> and you know, sometimes we can't help it. Uh, when I graduated from college, Ted saved up some money for us and we flew to Europe to celebrate and uh, took like way too many bag bags and luggage and we were so out of it. Everybody had their little backpacks and we're, we didn't know what we were doing. But before we took off, I'm on the plane, and you know how the stewardess is getting that bin over you, and two stewardesses are talking in a bin right above my head, and one of them says to the other, did you hear that sound? <laughs> and the other one says, what sound? <laughs> kind of looking around to see if anyone heard her. She goes, that sound, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> And the other one says, I don't hear anything. And the other one says, that sound, rah, rah, something's wrong with the plane. <laughs> and the other one says, I don't know what you're talking about. And she wanders off. The other one goes chasing her. And I think, man, that's a conversation I wish I never heard. <laughs> As we're going down the runway and about to take off, I thought there was nothing beneficial and eavesdropping on that conversation, although I didn't really have a choice. Today, we are going to eavesdrop on some really important conversations between Moses and God, and listening to these closely, we can really learn and change how we pray. They are great conversations. Here's the main thing that I want us to realize from Moses' prayer, which is an unbelievable thing. It's at the top of your outline. We cannot change the eternal purposes and plans of God, but our prayers can affect the way God accomplishes his eternal plans and purposes. Even though we are imperfect, even though we are fallen, we can join God and his will will be accomplished in this world. He uses our prayers combined with his own determination to accomplish his will. When we lean in from these chapters and listen to Moses' words as he speaks and has intercessory prayer, and then we lean in and we listen to God's words to Moses, we can see that we have found wonderful example of what the intercessory prayer of a person can do with the will of God connected together, both elements bringing about what he wants done. And you and I probably want to say this, hey, that was Moses. I mean, I, my prayers will never compare to Moses. He was special. There was something about him. His talks with God are beyond the possibility for me. And I want to say, aren't the words of James 5? Written for us, look on your verse sheet. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power 
as it is working. You know, we have to remember, Moses didn't ask for that job. Moses was chosen by God. He had a calling. And the same thing's true. He was just as weak and fallen as we are. We also have a calling. We also serve the same God. We can pray like Moses did and become prayer partners with the plans of God. Is that not incredible? That is a reality. So we can also learn how to intercede for people that we love as Moses did. Our passionate pleas fall on the ears of a God of compassion, a compassionate God. He is loving. He is not inflexible. He cares about our needs. He cares about our desires. And we just need to remember that. Look what 1 John 5 says. This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Last week, we left Moses on the mountain. Remember, he's receiving God's laws. He's been there now for 40 days. The people have been coming to the bottom of the mountain and staring up, wondering, where is he? What happened to our leader? Who is our leader? Wondering about God. Who is our God? In only three months, they have forgotten that every hour of their wilderness journey has been covered in Yahweh's divine care. In three months. Look at Exodus 32 with me, verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, well, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with the graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This was a people that needed prayer. Good for them, they had Moses. Here he is having this spiritually rich, triumphant time on the top of a mountain while the people he loves are down reaching the lowest possible spiritual point they can. And remember, they just received the Ten Commandments. Remember how Moses, through the blood of the covenant, those stains of blood were still on their clothes. Not much time had gone by. Their words to God still hung in the air. All that the Lord says, we will do. This confirmed their covenant with God. And they also include, we can include there, look at Exodus 20. God told them this, that they agreed to. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water 
under the earth. He also had said to them, you shall not make for yourself a God of gold. And they said, we will do all that you say. What happened? What happened to these people? I believe in their panicky time when we all do silly things, in their time of panic, they succumbed to a pagan worldview that they had learned in the land of Egypt. They sunk that low. Did you notice? Who do they say delivered them from Egypt? Moses. Not God. Since he's gone, we need God to lead us. The God of signs and wonders and power and provision is forgotten. His presence is forgotten. The God of the promises, the covenant blessings is forgotten. They want to turn God into a God of their making. Israel worshiped their false God, believing they were honoring the one true God. They had gathered themselves together, went to Aaron, demanding he make gods to go before them. And sadly, Aaron says, okay. Hard to even imagine. And so he has them bring earrings. Remember how the Egyptians gave the women and the children and the men some of their gold? They probably had these gold earrings on. He fashioned it all their gold into a calf. He probably built a wooden frame and then put the gold on top of it. And this golden calf was known as a pagan symbol of virility, fertility, and sexual strength. That's the God that they made. It was a pagan religious symbol. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, why in the world are they using the plural word here, gods? Because they considered this calf an image of Yahweh God. So when they say gods, they're sort of combining Yahweh God with the idol that they made right before them. Uh, this is a picture of religious syncretism. Two belief systems opposing each other, blending into one. That's what's happening right here. You know, years ago, I was on a mission trip in Guatemala. We went to this very mainstream church. We were on the concrete steps of it, and we looked down, and it was stained with blood. And we asked the people, what, what went on here? And they said, oh, yeah, we sacrificed chickens here on these steps. Syncretism. There was a Christian church that had blended with pagan cult practices right there in Guatemala. That's what's happening here. Israel attempting to worship the one true God through pagan worship practices. And these were means God had just declared unacceptable, so this sin was a very destructive sin. And then they brought offerings that Aaron built to an altar. Uh, they were so excited about it that Aaron proclaimed, let's have a feast tomorrow. They ate and they drank in the morning and they sang and they danced and they rose up to play, which was a common phrase used to describe idolatrous worship. 
meaning revelry, sexual immorality, nakedness, drunkenness. An idol, an altar, sexual promiscuity, these are pagan fertility practices. They had to see God to believe in him, therefore a golden calf. Moses, on the other hand, God's word tells us walked by faith and not by sight. We have to do that as well. Look at Hebrews 11 on your verse sheet. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And if we think about it, no people group ever before or ever after saw more miracles, more signs, more wonders, more unbelievable things as Israel did. And yet, do you see how quickly they forgot them? We cannot build a lasting faith depending on those kind of things. Exodus 32, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Israel broke their covenant with God, and God says it was by their corruption, by their disobedience, and by their rebellion. And in his anger, did you notice what God does here? What does he call the people of Israel? Your people, Moses. You brought them out. He's not claiming ownership of those people at that moment. To be corrupted means to go to ruin to walk away from truth that is revealed. And God used that same word corrupted to describe the society that surrounded the ark in Noah's day that had to be destroyed. He says they're disobedient. They ignore the commands. I have just given them that they agreed to obey. And he says they're stiff-necked, which means they're rebellious. Stubborn rebellion. It's like, have you ever been on a horse and you're trying to get it to go this way and it just ignores you? And you're yanking on those reins? That's what a stiff-necked, rebellious person is like. They go their own way. I can't imagine Moses' heart as he is hearing these words. I think horror hits his heart because he is standing on Mount Sinai Surrounded by the burning holiness of God, which is described as a devouring fire. And he knows what this could mean to the people he loves at the bottom of this mountain. Look at verse 10. God says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He threatens to destroy this nation and make a new one from Moses. Basically, God is saying, I'll start over with a new people and you will be the new 
Abraham, and I will build a new nation through you, Moses, and this could be a severe test for Moses. But it doesn't look much like it was, even though he would have honor and glory. I think Moses isn't thinking about that. Moses is thinking about the welfare of the people that God called him to lead, the people under his care. And so his passionate pleas to a passionate, compassionate God begin. So look at verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'll multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I've promised, I'll give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses implores God to consider, these are your chosen people. He reverses God's words and he says, no, no, they're not my people. They're your people. You delivered these people. With your power, your might, they're yours, they're your children, and they are yours not only by creation, but by redemption. You redeem them. Then Moses shows his deep concern for the name of his God, Jehovah, and he says, what will the Egyptians say? When there's the complete annihilation of the nation of Israel, you know what Egypt would do? They would rejoice. They would be prideful because once they made an accusation. Your God just wants to take you out in the desert to do away with you. He wants to do harm to you. And if God did this action, Moses is saying, their accusation would be proven true. They would mock you. They would call you evil. So he implores God to consider his testimony to the Egyptians. And then finally, he implores God to consider his promises to the patriarchs. To destroy Israel would end the possibility of the covenant promise being fulfilled. The promises of the patriarchs, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that their descendants would be innumerable. That they would live in a land that God would bless. That they would be a blessing to others, and they would be God's own people, God's own nation. So we picture Moses speaking these bold pleas before God. They're coming from the mouth of God's friend Moses as he pleads at the top of Mount Sinai, and his words move the heart of God. Look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The word relent means this, relief from an undesirable course of action. Relief. It doesn't mean God was unsure of his decisions. It just denotes a change in action as a result in a change among with whom God is dealing. 
And this is true in our lives too. When our hearts are walking with God, when we're repentant, when we ask forgiveness, when we confess, he does great things in our lives. He was going to accomplish his righteous purposes through different actions that agreed with these purposes. Because he is a God of compassion, he hears our prayers. And he acts upon our prayers. And also we need to remember here that God only threatened to destroy Israel. He did not decree it at this moment. So after Moses' prayer, God embarked on another course of action. So it was time for Moses and Joshua to come down the mountain. I think the steps that they took coming back down into the situation were sad steps, were heavy steps. Moses is carrying the two big heavy stone tablets that God himself wrote the laws upon. But even before Moses and Joshua can see the people, they can hear the people. And it's such a chaotic sound of shouting and laughter and yelling and screaming that Joshua thinks there's war in the camp. Moses, there's war. Moses knows, no, it's not the sound of war. It's the sound of singing and it's the sound of sin. And they come down and as they draw near to the camp, they witness in the firelight God's own people dancing loosely and lewdly around an idol that looks like a golden calf. Look at verse 19. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that he had made and burned it with, that they had made, and burned it with fire and ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. Now think if you were the people of Israel here, you're dancing around this fire, you're in the smoke, and all of a sudden out of the smoke comes the figure of Moses carrying two giant stone tabs. What in the world happened? I bet they just froze where they were. I bet it was a terrifying sign for them. What did they do when those stone tablets hit the ground and broken rubble everywhere? What did the people do? Moses is here taking action and he's gonna rid Israel of the evil influences that are around them. The commandments are broken. Of course, this symbolizes that Israel broke the covenant between him and God, between them and God, and they have a broken communion now between them and God. It also visualizes the fact that they've broken the commands of God. All that ha happened before their eyes. And then Moses burns the golden calf and crushes it and scattered it. And as they watch this happening, Moses in his anger lifting that calf and tossing it in the fire. I think it was a frightening moment. Pounding it, beating it, and then crushing it and grinding it into a, a powder. I think the words that God told them, I am a jealous God, 
would come home to their hearts at this point. I think they would also realize, which is what Moses would want, this God is nothing. It's nothing. It's wood and metal. It's crushed. If this idol couldn't save itself, how is it going to save us? Psalm 115, 3 through 9, Israel, will find out, was tempted by idols throughout their entire history. This is in the Psalms years later. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. They don't make a sound in their throat. Listen to this. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Moses took that remaining powder, spread it over a stream, and then you could see, as far as you could see, people kneeling on the banks of the stream and lapping up that water, and every time they did, it would remind them, there are consequences to my sin. God is punishing me for my sin. I'm being disciplined. And then Aaron is held responsible for his part, which was pretty big. Look at verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, oh, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know these people. They're set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any way of gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> I like some versions say, out popped this calf. <laughs> I think it's probably the funniest verse in the entire Bible. <laughs> you read in your homework that God wanted to destroy Aaron over all the sins that he played in this horrible sin. And Moses' prayers saved Aaron's life. Aaron does what we do when we're found guilty and we don't want to admit it. First thing he does is he points a finger. It was these people. You know that, Moses? They're evil. You know what they want to do. Secondly, he denies his sinful actions as if he didn't take a graving tool and form the calf himself. He just threw it into the fire and out popped the calf. So I guess this is how silly some of our excuses are when we try to rationalize away our sin. Remember the one everybody has said, I did my homework, but my dog ate it. I actually had a dog that did that once. And I remember thinking, my teacher will never believe me. You know, once, I'm gonna do this huge confession here. Years ago, I was at Sam's and I was in a big hurry and you have that big cart and you've got in your head, you know, all the things you're gonna get. 
and I'm coming down the aisle and there's a guy in front of the dog food area and you can tell he's one of those super aggressive salesmen. He's grabbing everybody that comes by. You could tell they've been there for 20 minutes. They're trying to get away. And I'm like, oh man, I'm just gonna run by as quick as I can. So I'm going down the aisle and he says, hey lady, do you have a dog? And I say, I hear myself say, no. I did have a dog. And then I was kind of mortified, and I thought, I just lied to that guy. So I thought, well, I'll go back down the aisle when he's gone, because I need dog food. <laughs> and I didn't want his dog food. <laughs> so I'm shopping, very guilty the rest of the time. I go back, I peek down the aisle, no weird guy. I go. I go and get, you know, you can't get any little bag of dog food, so I'm got my giant bag of dog food. I turn around, and there's the guy. And he says, so, you don't have a dog. What's with the dog, the dog food? And I don't remember what I said, but I try to explain my sin away, just like Aaron did. Aaron's sin led Israel into such sin that they lost the presence of God. And we have to admit, every time we sin, we don't like to say this, we think it only affects us, but it always affects someone else as well. Other people are always hurt. We're responsible for that. Verse 25 tells us that Aaron let the people break loose meaning they were given free reign to all their wild passions. This became an object of ridicule to their enemies. There were some Amalekites who were still kind of lingering in the area. They caught wind. Hey, Israel's having a giant party. They watched the nation of God, the people of the covenant, in great sin, worshiping a golden calf. They mocked the children of Israel. When Moses recognized this additional sin and the effect it had on their enemies, he went to the gate of the camp to find out who wants to walk with God and who wants to walk away from him. He said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. For the honor and glory of God for the covenant to be fulfilled, for the future blessings of Israel, for us to be a nation of holiness, a light to other nations. So this situation called for the separation of evil and godliness. Either we're on God's side or we're on the side of evil. Look at Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. Come to me, Moses said, all you who love the Lord. And all the tribe of Levi came to him. 
The Levites were from the tribe of Aaron, and in the chapters we missed, we would have seen that they'd been called by God to serve as his priests. And here we can see, we're not sure where they were when all the sin went down, but here we can see they want to uphold the holiness of God so that Israel could be a light to the world. They could not be if they acted just like all the other pagan nations. So with Moses leading them, the idol worshipers are destroyed, 3,000 of them by the Levites. And look at what Moses says to the Levites afterwards in verse 29. Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The Levites would later have the privilege of carrying the tabernacle for Israel. Now, all of this, but the heaviness of Israel's sin is still hanging over them. It's still hanging over Moses, and he knows atonement needs to be made for their sin. And again, he takes his passionate pleas to a compassionate God. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So he returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, but now go. Lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. I love that first, as Moses stands before God, he just confesses the sin of the people. He doesn't try to um, change it or make an excuse for it, he presents it for what it is. And this is what all sin is, rebellion against God. And that's what that was. His next words are considered by some to be the most passionate pleas ever recorded in the word of God from a servant of God. Moses pleads with God to offer his life, forgive Israel, and offer his life for their lives. And I just think the night before he decided he was going to do that, I bet Moses was tossing and turning in his tent. Will my desire prevail before God? Will he accept me as a sacrifice on behalf of a guilty nation? I'll be leaving the people. I'll be leaving my wife. I'll be leaving my children. But maybe he'll spare Israel. What an incredible prayer. He's willing to have his own name removed from the book of life. This is not the book of life for those who know salvation. This is the book of life, physical life. Maybe the census of the children of Israel. He is wanting to blot out his name, meaning he'll have an untimely death for the sake of Israel. What an emotional moment for Moses. What anguish, what pleas, what hurt. 
he had for Israel. You know, it reminded me of a time Paul desired the same things for the nation of Israel. Look at Romans 9, and we can see he had the same heart as Moses. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You know, Moses was a sinner himself, so he couldn't atone for their sins. But Paul tells us here, the sinless one who would one day atone for the sins of Israel would come from the nation of Israel itself. And we can see here, Moses' great love for Israel is an illustration of God's great love for us. And then he did provide an atonement for our sins, the offering of his son. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then God explains to Moses, each man must be responsible for their own sin and must be judged. Look at Psalm 93. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. A holy judge must act justly toward those who rebel against his holiness and against his statutes. And so the Lord sent a plague on Israel for those who had changed their allegiance from Yahweh to a piece of gold. But then I love that he also promised a future for Israel. He did not reject them as a nation after his prayer God promised justice and a future hope for Israel. He restores the promises to Israel. He says, I'm gonna drive out their enemies. I'm gonna take them to the land of milk and honey, or excuse me, an angel will. And that's the very bad news attached to this promise. They were now a people who needed God's presence. Israel mourned that God would not accompany them to the promised land. Look at verse 3 in chapter 33. God says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This news also hit the hearts of Israel deeply. They mourned inwardly. They mourned outwardly by removing their jewelry. When they walked in the sun on that wilderness, you would not see flickers of shine on jewelry they were wearing. They were mourning. Removing their jewelry was also a sign of reforming, changing their hearts. They weren't laughing. They weren't singing. They weren't dancing. They had a strained relationship with their God but Moses did not. He would pitch a tent outside the camp as a place of worship, and the fact that it was moved way far off from camp was a picture of the fact that he'd removed his presence from them because of their iniquity. 
But Moses would walk to that place. And as he walked, he would pass all these different tents. And I think the people go, there goes Moses. Come on, kids, come on. And they'd go to their tent door, and they'd watch Moses walk past to meet with God. And then they would see God's presence descend like a cloud at the entrance to the tent that Moses walked in. And the people would strain and look and see, and then they would stop and worship God from a distance at the door of their tent. Moses worshiped God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And when you hear the expression face to face, it doesn't literally mean two faces. It means open, intimate communication. It means passionate pleas to a compassionate God. And Moses is doing that again. Look at verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see You say to me, bring up this people, but you haven't let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. And consider too, this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence won't go with me, don't bring us up from here. How shall it be known I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. You know, this is a humble search of the heart of God, isn't it? What a wonderful thing for us to grow in the discipline of doing that with God, asking him questions, listening, seeking through his word and his counsel through his Holy Spirit. Moses wants more revelation about God's intentions here so he can lead Israel well. But he also confesses the pain in his heart. How can I lead well without your presence? So he speaks honestly, and he tells God, I don't want to go without you. I just don't want to do it. And here's what Moses is thinking. God's presence is what set Israel apart from every other nation on earth. And God's presence is what set Moses apart as a leader. So he asked God, go with us so we can remain distinct from all the other nations. And otherwise, why would we go forward at all? We can learn a lot about prayer from Moses here. He is forthright, bold. He speaks God's words back to him. He's sincere, like speaking to a best friend. And God replies, I'll do what you desire. You found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Knowing you by name means you belong to me. And I'll go with you. After Moses' prayer, God agrees to go and bring him rest. This is our compassionate God. And when he says my presence will go with you, in the Hebrew that means my face will go with you. 
You know, he's not a cold, distant God. My face will go with you means my presence, my communion, my friendship will go with you. I remember in the movie City Slickers years ago, he's apart from his family a long time, this husband and dad, and when he sees his daughter, he looks at her and says, that face, I missed that face. What did he really miss, her face? He missed her. He missed what they had together. That's what God goes with them to do, and he promises more. He promises rest, protection, provision, and blessing. Okay. We can pray like Moses did. You probably picked up a lot of thoughts as you were studying this. Here's just a few. To do that, we have to know the character and the promises of God. We do that mainly through his word. So we can speak truths back to him as Moses did. So our prayers line up with who God really is. So we don't make God to be something that he isn't. We don't make up some kind of golden calf that's powerless to do anything to help us. We have to care deeply about the needs of others. This will give us passion and a desire to go to God. I read the story of St. Augustine, a church father who was wayward a lot of his life with this godly praying mom begging God to change him. Once she went to a bishop and said, Hey, meet with my son, teach him. And he said, he's not ready to do that. And she said, please, please. She burst out weeping and crying. I'm worried for my son. And the bishop said this, it's impossible for the son of these tears to perish. Meaning if you care deeply, you must be praying deeply. And God's listening. We can pray for God's presence and rest to join our friends that are hurting on their wilderness We can pray for God to embark on another course of action and trust him in his purposes. And we can make a difference in their journey to the promised land of God's provision. We can do that. We have to hate sin. If we don't see sin as God sees sin, we won't pray. If we act like Aaron did and just rationalize it and blame others and are tolerant, we are closing our eyes to the reality that sin destroys it's a destroyer so we need to own up to our sin confess them and when we see sins in the lives of others we don't just shake a finger we don't just shake our head we don't just roll our eyes we pray for them sin is a destroyer we look at the sin and the people around us we pray for God to work in their life because we care We have to seek the face of God. As I said earlier, we don't just seek signs from God. We seek his face, an intimate friendship with him. We open our hearts to him. We have deep discussions. You know what this is like? This is a discipline. It was a discipline for Moses to meet with God on the top of Mount Sinai and climb every morning. That's what it's like for us to deepen our prayer walk with God. It's a discipline like climbing a mountain. And when we take those steps, we have to believe in faith. He's going to be there. He's going to meet me there because he loves me. He's going to hear me, and he's going to care about my prayers, and he's going to work through my prayers. Look at James 4. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 
when we meet with God, just like he met with Moses at the tent of meeting, we expect his presence. Look at Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We have to believe he's gonna reward us. And here's our goal as we grow in our prayer time. In our hearts, we wanna hear God say these words. You have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. You belong to me. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. You are mighty, you are powerful, you are just and holy, and you are compassionate. Teach us to reach out to you in faith, and thank you that you hear us. Thank you that you love us, in Jesus' name, amen.